Let's continue to pray. Indeed, Father, we pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word as your spirit drives your truth into our hearts. We would pray as we begin another year that your word would not simply be information, but that your spirit would bring about transformation in our lives. As we think upon your word, as we go into the gospel of Luke, we pray that your spirit would cause us to see the glory, the beauty of Christ, so that we would truly come to him in faith, in submission to his lordship. And as we submit to him, Father, we pray that the reality of his compassion, his grace, his love might fill us with delight in him so that we would not be able to stop talking about Jesus, but that from us would go out the gospel, the good news about this king who triumphed not by force of arms, but by outstretched arms on the cross, and who is coming again to bring about the shalom of the kingdom that we desperately long for in a world filled with turmoil, filled with hate, in a a world of chaos. We pray that you would help us as a church to demonstrate the peace that only Christ could bring, the unity, the love that only the gospel would bring about as hearts are changed and brought under the reign of Christ. May our church truly be a foreshadowing of the kingdom that has come and is coming. And that you would give us wisdom so that we may know how we may reach out to our city in concrete ways, how we might connect with our neighbors, that we may bring the life-giving word of the gospel. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in our midst so that we may be truly a people who fulfill your purpose for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we'll begin with verse 14 and then we'll continue to the end of Luke Chapter 4, really appreciate the harmonies that the team brought today. The harmonies aren't just beautiful, they also in, in many ways model for us how the church should be, of every part doing its share. So thank you, Jess, for that good work, and thank you, team. All right, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to verse 44 the first Sunday of the new year, and with every beginning, it's a sense of excitement and anticipation. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're looking forward to what the year will bring. In a way, that's how the people of Nazareth would have felt 
when Jesus stood up to speak at the synagogue where he had grown up. By this time, Jesus would have been a year into his public ministry. But Luke chooses to begin his account of Jesus' ministry with this event because it captures both the content of Jesus' teaching and the response to his ministry. So let's read Luke chapter 4, verse 14, up to verse 22. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now by the time Jesus spoke at the synagogue in Nazareth, we know that he was already pretty well known because Luke in verse 14 and 15 tells us, And Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So the hometown crowd was expecting a lot. And Luke, you will notice, deliberately slows the action down so that you and I could feel ourselves to be in the room where it happened. And Jesus chooses an interesting text. He chooses to combine Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 from the passage that Mary read earlier and Isaiah 58, verse 6. These were passages that referenced the year of Jubilee. It was a provision in the law which said that on the 50th year, all debts would be forgiven and all properties would be restored to their original owners. This was in the law of Israel, but there doesn't seem to be any record of Israel actually keeping the year of Jubilee. But Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6 were nonetheless familiar texts that were interpreted as God's promise of a new exodus, a promise that God would redeem and restore Israel from exile. And so Jesus deliberately chooses this text. You are, to you are told in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This was his chosen text. 
And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And in case you're wondering, in the ESV, it's uh, the, the captives are freed. The Septuagint reading is recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's from Isaiah 58 verse 6. And then back to Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as Jesus reads these words, the audience perks up. They recognize the reference. They recognize that Jesus has combined two passages into one reading. The atmosphere is electric. Every eye is on Jesus. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down because that's the normal teaching position. And with every eye fixed on him, Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that. Imagine being a Jew in Nazareth, listening to Jesus and being told that now, right here, right now, salvation has dawned. And the one who brings salvation is speaking to you. As Daryl Bach would say, Jesus is saying to his hometown audience, the time that all people faithful to God have been waiting for is now here, and it is found in me. This is far greater than um, Louis XIV being asked, where, where is the state? C'est moi. That was an act of arrogance on the part of Louis XIV. This is the servant of the Lord, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, declaring to his hometown, salvation has come. He doesn't simply proclaim liberty. Verse 18 says, he sets at liberty those who are oppressed. He accomplishes salvation. And everyone is amazed at the message of grace, the good news of God's undeserved salvation. But here's the problem. The people marvel, but they don't believe. When they say, is not this Joseph's son? There's probably a bit of pride in the local boy who made good and a little bit of skepticism towards his surprising claim that he is the one who brings salvation. However, the people might have been thinking, in light of what Luke has already told us in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we know that their response is woefully wrong-headed. Because Jesus isn't just Joseph's son. In fact, he isn't Joseph's son. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second Adam who had defeated Satan in the wilderness. As Benjamin Glad would say, 
In the first three chapters, Luke explicitly identifies Jesus as the long-awaited descendant of David, as Yahweh himself, Israel's faithful servant, and the second Adam. That Jesus is simultaneously Israel's God incarnate, that's why he uses the name the Lord, and faithful Adam is critical. Jesus is the God-man, and both natures fulfill different aspects of the Old Testament. That's what Luke has told us over the last three chapters. But sadly, the people don't take Jesus at his word. They wanted him to prove himself to them. And that reminds you of what Satan tried to do in the wilderness, doesn't it? Satan tempted Jesus to tempt God. And that's why Jesus says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Prove that you are the one who brings salvation. Show us your works. The people wanted Jesus to dance to their tune instead of acknowledging him as Lord, instead of submitting themselves to him. And so instead of giving them works, Jesus reminds them of how God had sent Elijah to the widow of Zarephath and how Naaman of Syria was the only leper Elisha healed. That's in verse 25 and 26. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. It was his way of saying, God has no obligation to you, people. And as Colin Smith recognizes, grace because Jesus spoke gracious words, words of grace. Grace means that something is freely given and without obligation. There are no rights in the world of grace. And this is where the people of Nazareth got into difficulties, as many still do today. The tragedy was that the people who felt Jesus owed them found no mighty works were done in their town. People who think it is their right receive nothing from Christ. God does not bless on demand. What happened at Nazareth happens in every culture. Our default approach to God is to tell him what he must do for us. But grace means that God has no obligations, and that makes people angry. See, Jesus had no obligations to the people of Nazareth to do any mighty works for them. His grace would be available only to those who acknowledged their need and humbled themselves before God. See, that's what being poor is about. In the Gospel of Luke, the poor are those who depend upon the Lord, those who realize they require God's help. And Jesus has another point to make to the people. He's not just telling them, I don't owe you anything, people. He's also telling them, very subtly, 
that they were like the Israelites during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Idolatrous, unfaithful, covenant breakers. And the mere fact that they were under the rule of Rome meant that they were under judgment. So that they needed more than political deliverance. They needed to repent and be reconciled to God. Remember, that was John's preparation for the ministry of Jesus, right? He was calling people to a baptism of repentance. And Jesus is continuing that call to repentance so that they might be reconciled to God. And confronted with the truth about themselves, the people's amazement turns into anger. In fact, they got so mad, verse 29 tells us that they wanted to throw him off the cliff. But verse 30 tells us that passing through their midst, Jesus went away. It wasn't time for Jesus to be killed. Now this event, though, is a microcosm of Jesus' ministry. That's why Luke begins with it. As Simeon had told Mary in chapter 2, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Rejection was a fact of life for Jesus in his public ministry. And this rejection would culminate in his death on the cross. But wonderfully, that rejection was the very means by which Jesus accomplished our salvation. Because by his death, he paid for our sins. By his resurrection, he's made us a people of the new creation. That's how he brings liberty to the oppressed and recovery of sight to the blind. His spirit opens our eyes to our desperate sinfulness and enables us to trust in him. We were just talking about that today in catechism class. And God has given us new hearts on which God's law is written. So we begin to desire to obey him. That change of heart means that God's pleasure now matters more than our sin. He has freed us from sin's condemnation. And now God is freeing us from the grip of sin. And when Christ returns, his work will be consummated and we will be like him. And as recipients of Jesus' saving work, I think his experience of rejection should encourage us as we seek to fulfill our calling to proclaim the gospel to the people around us. I think none of us like rejection, right? But I hope you understand that the Apostle Peter points out that that's part of our calling to follow in his steps. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. But Let's understand that there is a significant difference between being rejected because you're an arrogant jerk and people rejecting the truth. If you're an arrogant jerk, you deserve to be rejected. (laughs) The truth should not be rejected. 
we have to understand as we read through the gospel that Jesus spoke with winsome grace. He was a friend of sinners. But people got angry when Jesus began to expose their sinful hearts. So please understand that difference. But when we have spoken as graciously as we could and truthfully and we get rejected, I hope we understand that Jesus knows how we feel when people reject our proclamation of the gospel. He's been there. And as our great high priest, he invites us to draw near to him so that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And being rejected means that we don't give up. First of all, because Jesus is so wonderful, people need to know him. We are privileged to represent the true king who has already triumphed. And second, because Rejection doesn't change who we are in Jesus Christ. Nazareth's rejection never changed who Jesus was. Neither did it hinder Jesus' ministry. We find that as we move on in Luke. As Luke now in verse 31 moves on to show the folly of Nazareth by describing Jesus' teaching ministry in terms of his authority. They rejected Jesus... Now, Luke responds to their rejection by showing, actually, Jesus was teaching with authority. We are told in verse 32 that the people at the synagogue in Capernaum were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for his word possessed authority. And that authority, the extent of that authority was on display as a demon-possessed demon man challenged Jesus in verse 34. Hear the demon speaking. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Imagine somebody with a demon speaking up in a service. All of us would kind of get freaked out, Right? Jesus is unfazed. Luke tells us, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Imagine that. For all of his power, for all of his hostility towards Jesus, this demon could not resist Jesus' command. He was bound to obey. And so rightly, the people are amazed at Jesus' authority, demonstrated by his power over demons in verse 36. And word about Jesus spreads even further. And not content with that, Luke now begins to tell us about another expression of Jesus' authority, because Jesus goes from the synagogue to Peter's home, where Peter's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, according to verse 38. Now, when you're ill with a high fever, I mean, a lot of us have had that. You're down for the count. You're in bed, right? And you're not getting up, even if the fever goes. 
You're too tired and weak. Well, look what happens. We are told in verse 39 that Jesus rebuked the fever. And such was his authority that Peter's mother-in-law was immediately able to get up and serve them. No after effects of the fever. And that's not because she's Dutch (laughs) or Italian (laughs) or Jewish. It is because the healing that Jesus exercised was complete and total. He healed her so that she might serve. And as if that were not enough, Luke then tells us about what happened after sunset, in the evening, after Sabbath. The people in the village and in the surrounding villages started to bring, we are told in verse 40, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. We don't know how many of that, how many people there were. But Jesus healed everyone. And Luke is emphatic. Look at verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now, for 21st century people, we would have said, Jesus, couldn't you have just healed them all efficiently? Like, you know, you, you got the power to just say, Hi, welcome, you're healed, go home. Right? He could have just healed them en masse and gotten some rest. But he exercises personal attention and care because this Jesus, who is king, who brings salvation, exercises his authority with compassion. It's easy to get scared of authority because we've often seen and experience authority being exercised harshly without care for people's needs. Luke emphasizes that Jesus' authority is exercised with compassion. We can, we must trust him. And then yet again, we are told that he cast out multiple demons. Whereas in the synagogue there was just one This time, he cast out many demons and he would not allow them to speak, according to verse 41. Because though they knew he was the Christ, the Son of God, he didn't want their testimony. Now, if you compare Jesus' ministry in Capernaum with his ministry in Nazareth, it seems as if he was more successful in Capernaum, right? But again, here's the problem. The people of Capernaum were receptive to Jesus far more than the people of Nazareth, but they were also unwilling to submit to Jesus, just like the people of Nazareth. Look at verse 42. Luke says they would have kept Jesus from leaving them. They wanted Jesus to themselves. I mean, who who wouldn't, right? Let's keep the healer here. What if I get sick tomorrow? 
And James Edwards rightly asserts that Capernaum's desire for exclusive rights to Jesus misunderstands and impedes his mission, for it prevents him from proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns. Satan sought to redefine Jesus' mission in the temptation, and the Nazarenes, in threatening to throw Jesus from a cliff, sought to end it. But even Capernaum's desire to be fed by Jesus, as we say today, is self-serving, and thus an overture of self-will over God's will. And friends, that self-serving attitude is still a danger and temptation for us today, isn't it? We can get so focused on our needs as individuals and as a congregation that we lose sight of our calling to proclaim the gospel. And that's the best way to lose our vitality. It sounds counterintuitive, but the most effective way to strengthen the church internally is to make proclaiming the gospel to our city our priority. God builds us up as we go. Because the task of communicating the gospel causes us to draw near to God for strength and guidance. And so in response to Capernaum's desire that he stay, Jesus says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Notice the I must, and I was sent for this purpose. Jesus evaluates the desire of Capernaum in light of God's mission for him, to which he is absolutely committed. You see, even the miracles that Jesus performed in Capernaum and all throughout his ministry were part of his proclamation of the kingdom. The exorcisms he performed demonstrated his rule over the cosmos. They they showed that he is indeed king over all. And the healings that he performed anticipate the new creation where sickness and death will be no more. Everything Jesus did was centered on his mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And that's why we can say that he is truly the faithful servant of the Lord. And as his people, the recipients of the salvation that he accomplished, the servant of the Lord sends us on mission. As we enter another year, Let's refocus. Let's remember that God intends for us to be a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost. As such, we exist to worship God with our whole lives as a loving community under the gospel. We seek to produce disciples in Guelph and around the world. See, a base camp is a launching place. Gospel proclamation is intrinsic to our discipleship. We gather to strengthen and encourage one another so that we can go out with the gospel. And yes, for sure, as we purposefully gather together as a loving community under the gospel, we act as a lighthouse because we are displaying the transforming power of the gospel that brings us together in loving unity a unity that is distinctive and unique in a fragmented world. 
But I hope you understand that if we just hang out together without going out with the gospel, then we're neither a lighthouse nor a base camp. We are a black hole that sucks everything in and doesn't let anything out. If we are to be faithful to our calling to be a base camp and a lighthouse, we need to give the gospel to the people around us. That's why we live together to worship God with our whole lives. So that as we engage with people, as we interact with people, there would be questions raised in their minds that say, what makes these people different? And by God's grace, make them, make them desire to have what makes us so strange. And my prayer as we enter 2024 is that this year would see us joining Jesus in his mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, God's wonderful reign to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people around us. Because that's why we're here. It's for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, who indeed is the anointed servant of the Lord who brings salvation. We thank you that Jesus wasn't just talk. We thank you that his words are true and that he backed up his words with action. Not the way people wanted him to back them up, but in the way that you, our sovereign Lord, had planned it from before time began. We thank you for Christ, the servant of the Lord, who in his obedience to you was crucified, submitted himself to the agony, the shame of the cross, so that he might secure our forgiveness. So that through faith, we are united to him. Our sins laid on him, his righteousness that fully pleased you would be laid upon us. And in his resurrection, we thank you that we rise with him to new life so that we are now the people of the new creation. And if you have bound us together by your spirit into this church, so that we may embody that new creation and represent your transforming grace to the world by our life together. And we thank you that you do this so that through us, the word of the gospel would go out as we adorn the gospel, both with our lives and with our lips. So Father, we pray, give us courage Open our eyes to see the opportunities that you are bringing before us. And grant us the courage, the strength, grant us the faith so that we may step boldly into those opportunities. 
to proclaim Christ and Him crucified regardless of the cost. Lord, may we truly be a light to the nations. And we recognize this is not something we could do of ourselves. This is something we could do only by the strength, the grace you provide. And we thank you, you've given us your spirit who does this very thing. So help us then, Father, to be faithful, to give the gospel to the people around us as we live out the gospel from day to day. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.